Hey everybody, welcome back to the Nothing Old Podcast. As always, we're back with another awesome episode. I know you guys are going to dig this one. But uh, before we get into the show, have to talk about our sponsors because they are gracious enough to contribute to the show and help keep us on the air. So first and foremost, our lead sponsor for Season 2, as always, is Modus Nation. You can check them out at modusnation.com. Ben and Lindsay do an amazing work. They're always coming out with new designs, always have a new t-shirt coming out. And more importantly, they also have uh, new charities they're always working with. I just saw on their social media today, in fact, that they have a firefighter charity shirt coming out here in the next few days. It might already be out, but it looks like it's a, it's a new release for them. So please check them out. Everybody loves firemen. They can definitely use your support. Ben and Lindsay can use your support also. They, they definitely they definitely have earned it. Uh, they contribute a lot to charities of different kinds, whether it's a military charity or whether it's a charity local to their own community. They, uh, they're definitely doing a lot of good work, even though they're a smaller company, even though they're fairly new, they're taking the time out to, to give back, which is awesome. A lot of companies won't do that. So they're, they definitely deserve your support. And we're only five weeks away from Christmas. And obviously with all the supply chain issues out there, please support a local company because you're going to actually get your gifts and you're going to be supporting people that actually give back to the community instead of some no-name corporation that is buying stuff made in China. So please check out modusnation.com and use our promo code NOTHINGOWED for a special discount on their website. So again, uh, modusnation.com, check them out. I know you're going to dig it. And also, too, I want to talk about Grindops Coffee. Aaron Meza doing an awesome job. Coffee is an amazing gift. And again, going back to the supply chain issues, what's better than a bag of coffee for Christmas? Because you know it's going to be fresh, you know it's going to be good, and you know you're going to get it. It's not going to be some product stuck on a boat somewhere out in the Los Angeles Harbor. You can actually get get some coffee. You'll have a gift in your hand to, to give to your loved ones. So please uh, check out Aaron Meza and Grind Ups Coffee. Doing awesome work out there. And he's another supporter of charity. Uh, I know I've said it before, but in case you don't remember, he actually has a charity, or he supports charity, excuse me, that uh, actually keeps service dogs from being euthanized. So it's a really worthwhile cause. He's doing amazing work. You know, again, another new company, but he's taking the time to give back to charity also. And that's really one of the things that we like to hear on, on the show. You know, we like to hear small business. We like to hear people that are really, you know, putting in the putting in the hours to grow their business. But at the same time, people that give back to the community, you know, it's it's kind of rare nowadays. So people like that, like Aaron, definitely deserve your support. And real quick, you know, Winfield Watch just has a new watch, come, just released a new watch. Excuse me. It's an automatic field watch. Very cool. Uh, very similar to their MT1 design, which is awesome, which I actually have one myself. But uh, Winfield Watch is doing amazing work also. And again, you know, small company, veteran-owned. So please uh, please consider them for your Christmas gifts. And lastly today, I want to talk just real quick about uh, Ve- Cranky Veteran Candles. Again, another veteran-owned company. They're making amazing candles. I know it sounds like, oh, it's just a candle, who cares? But with Cranky Veteran, you're actually getting a candle that is made by hand made by veterans, and is made using natural materials, so it's actually safe to burn in your house. You're not going to be releasing any toxic chemicals into your into your home that you and your family are going to be breathing. So the Cranky Veteran candles are awesome candles. They have awesome scents, and they're non-toxic. They're healthy. You're not going to have any issues burning those candles in your house. So please, uh, please check out Cranky Veteran and buy some of their candles for Christmas gifts, because what goes better than a candle at Christmas time? Let's make your house look... Uh, Look pretty and awesome, and I know your family would appreciate getting a whole case full of candles. So please, uh, please go to Cranky Veteran Candle. So that being said, I'm going to turn it over to myself so we can get the show started. All right, thanks everybody. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Nothing Old Podcast. 
As always, we're back with another awesome episode. Uh, this week, we're going to talk to Craig Martin of High Seas Provisions. Uh, Craig's an awesome dude. He's a Navy vet. We've been chatting for a couple minutes like we like to do. Um, I know you guys are going to dig this one. Uh, Craig's an awesome guy, put in a lot of work building his company up to where it is now. Uh, so we're going to talk to him in just a second. But uh, before we do, always got to turn it over to Ben to uh, check in with him and, and see what's new. So Ben, what's new? How you been? Pretty good. Pretty good, man. I'm excited about today's episode as usual, but, uh, you know, Veterans Day week. Um, we, we got a veteran in here who's got a great story. Um, he's in Texas, which uh, we're all right. big fans of everything Texas. So <laughs> meat, meat, pickles in Texas. I mean, you can't go wrong with that, right? I mean, he was a Navy guy, but but we'll let that slide. But uh, no, I'm excited to talk to Craig. Um, you know, I think uh, this week we'll see some, uh, hopefully we see some recognition national uh, nationally with uh, Veterans Day and all the activities going on. So um, everything's good, man. Just excited to be here, excited to, to do another episode. So I am training for a tough mutter. Uh, well, when's that? Two two weekends from now, it's uh, it's gonna be fun. I'm going with that MVP group. Bruno, yeah. Bruno, uh, got got me uh, suckered into that. So Very we'll cool. see. We'll see if I live through that. I may I may not make it. <laughs> we'll should see. We, should we put on a help wanted ad now for another co-host? Yeah, you might need a co-host uh, in two weeks because because my uh, my back explodes as I'm climbing <laughs> over some ob- obstacle. But if I do well, I may go back in the army. I mean, it's there's a lot weighing on this. So if I come out alive and I feel good, I might, I might reenlist. Do it. Go back in. Yeah. Right. Anyway, let's get yeah. after yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So with that, Craig, we're going to turn it over to you. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you could just kind of give our listeners a, a brief background, um, maybe a little bit where you grew up, you know, uh, where you went to school, all that good stuff. I know you enlisted in the Navy, which is awesome. So just, uh, Good background story to be good. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Craig. It's all yours. Yeah, man. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me, and uh, super excited to be during uh, Veterans Day week. That's uh, that's pretty rad. Good timing. Um, yeah. So uh, I I grew up uh, about an hour and a half from where I'm at now. I'm in uh, Fort Worth now. I grew up in a little town of Terrell, Texas. You guys may have heard of uh, from such fame as Jamie's Fox's hometown. That's that's really about it. <laughs> There's uh, not much in Terrell other than a giant billboard See, as you come into town with Jamie Fox's face on it. You're something. you're in Fort Worth right now. Yes, yeah, I live in Fort Worth. So, dude, I anytime I get near Dallas, so just you don't know this, but our listeners know that I get distracted really easy when I'm talking to people from Texas about <laughs> food. About food, um, I'm a foodie. So, but did I? make a point to go to the Fort Worth stockyards and get barbecue any time I am near Fort Worth. Um, last time we ate at, is it, it's um, Cooper's Coop, okay. Coop, Cooper's. Is yeah. It, Cooper's. Is yeah. Something Cooper's. They had live music going and dude, just the barbecue in Texas is different than we, we just got actually a guy here in law. I live in Las Vegas. We got a guy that opened up Texas barbecue here, um, and he does all beef ribs, none of the pork ribs. And nice. uh, he gets his wood, though, from from right outside Austin. All of his wood oh, wow. come, comes from Texas. So, cause he, and he'll tell you, you know, he, he ships in, a, you know, a trailer load or whatever, because the wood that you buy here doesn't 
doesn't do the right thing. I guess it's it's what you got in the soil down there. But uh, all right. I think all that mesquite wood and stuff. But um, I have to ask yeah. you, I ask every other Texas guest, are you a Kalachi fan? Uh, so, so I'll give you a little bit of a, a little bit of definition here that you may or may not be aware of from your travels to Texas. There are actually two different types of kolache. The common misconception is that when you're eating a kolache that has a little chunk of sausage and some jalapeno and cheese and stuff in it, that's a kolache. That's actually incorrect. Um, so, uh, the Czech people that, uh, settled in Texas a few hundred years ago, um, invented the so-called kolache, but a kolache is the fruit version that, uh, if you're familiar with Jewish food at all, it, it kind of resembles a hamantashen is what they call it. And it's the little, you know, either square or circular kind of disc of dough with a little glob of, of almost like a jam type fruit jelly in the middle of it. But the meat version is actually called a klobaniski. And, oh. uh, yes. So I actually had to deliver some goods to one of the grocery stores I stock at in Austin last week. And when you drive from the DFW area to Austin, it's like sacrilegious to not stop in the little town of West Texas, where the majority of the the uh, Czech people have settled. And they actually have a, a place there called the Czech Stop, C-Z-E-C-H. Um, but that's actually the, just the tourist trap one. If you go across the highway to Slava checks, that's where the good stuff is, man. I've been and, to one uh, of those. Yeah. I was at Fort hood for a minute and, uh, yeah. I've been to one of those. Uh, I don't remember which one it's been a minute. I did not know though, that that was the, the proper. So most good Kalachi places are in donut places, number one. So they usually right. have the fruit kind of pastry one you know whatever right. um there's a place in salt lake that we go to when we're up there now that that does a good texas i also think that if the kolache is open-ended it's sacrilegious like if you just if it looks like a <laughs> like a a pig in a blanket kind of thing where the sausage is sticking out both ends it, i think a kolache has to be enclosed like a bun enclosed if it has right. sav savory stuff in it like right. eggs or sausage and eggs chorizo or whatever it is but i don't i won't eat the ones that just have a jalapeno on top and looks like a croissant folded over i won't eat those but uh, right. i i enjoy the fruit flavored ones too yeah i, yeah, I actually so know what you're talking about i just didn't know there was a name difference technically right. Yeah, so ironically enough, I mean, Slavichex is really good. They have my favorite kolache of all time. It's actually a boudin when they put a little chunk of boudin sausage in there. Oh, that um, sounds amazing. And, dude, that one's the best one ever. Um, so what, what, what's, a, what's a boudin sausage? I've never heard of that. Uh, boudin is a Cajun thing, man. They make it, uh, you know. Um, you're, Similar you're, to andouille. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's got a rice, uh, base. So they take all the guts, all the innards, all the liver and kidneys and all that stuff from the hog and cook that down and render it and, um, and then blend it with rice and they stuff that sausage. So it's kind of a, most people know what they call boudin blanc. It's a white, uh, kind of a off white colored sausage, but it's got a ton of rice and then all those innard hog goodies in there, man. And, and uh, you cross you cross the border out of Texas into Louisiana, you just see billboard after billboard advertising boudin. Same thing. If you go to Louisiana, don't come back with a cooler full of boudin. Your buddies aren't going to talk to you for a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, I'm missing out. 
Mm-hmm. No, you know what? This is probably sacrilegious, but the the Kalachi place in in uh, Salt Lake City we go to actually does like a biscuits and gravy one. It's got like sausage and gravy in it, and it's mm-hmm. it's actually it's actually my favorite one up there is that one. It's like a it's a little bite of of biscuits and gravy inside of you know real Kalachi dough, um, right. but but it's uh it's a good one. So yeah, there's uh. My favorite place uh, here in DFW is actually down the street from my my what used to be my day job that I quit a few months ago. Um, but my my office was in basically like Little Korea in Dallas, and oh yeah, everything yeah. around was over there was all Korean. Like you go in and there's no zero English. Like you just got to point to what you want. But there's this little tiny, like four foot nothing Korean lady that opened a kolache shop. And she did weird stuff like she had uh, sausage and gravy, like you're talking about inside. It almost kind of looks like a dinner roll, but it all yeah. good stuff in there. Dude, she did like she did a uh, a pizza one with pepperoni mozzarella, like chicken Alfredo and just all kinds of weird stuff. You wouldn't think this little tiny Korean lady that didn't speak any English would know what a kolache was. But dude, she freaking killed it. And she, she will sell it. out. I'd go there at like. 6 30 6 45 in the morning on my way to work and she'd be sold out of my favorite one every freaking time <laughs> it's awesome so That's as cool. usual whenever we're talking food i hijack the podcast and interrupt the guest <laughs> and uh find out what the favorite kolache is but so you were you were uh you were born and raised just a little bit outside fort worth yeah <clears throat> yeah so grew up in terrell um like I said, not much going on in Terrell. Um, we had to go into Dallas to get into any real trouble, you know, so typical country boy stuff, you know, throwing parties in the middle of cow pastures in the freaking middle of nowhere and stuff like that. That's kind of, it's kind of what I had going on. There's not really much happening in Terrell. And, um, I had, uh, you know, had decent grades and was decent in athletics and stuff like that, but didn't really have much to speak of in the way of getting, into college and and stuff like that. We grew up super poor. Um, my dad was disabled, hurt on the job, and my mom, you know, did some odd jobs here and there and stuff like that. But we we grew up super freaking poor. So really, my only way out of Terrell, Texas, was military. Um, my dad was Navy. Didn't really get along with my dad too well. So I always told myself I was you know I was never going in the military and I was never going in the Navy, especially and um, I think it was my, like the, the very beginning of my senior year, you know, recruiters come to the high school and talk to everybody and talk to the Marine recruiters and was, you know, was kind of feeling it, but not really, just didn't really seem like the right choice and stuff. And then, um, some Navy recruiters came and talked to me and started waving that magic, uh, sign on bonus check in my face. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds nice. Where, where do I sign up for that? Um, so yeah, uh, signed up when I was still a senior, and uh, it took a little while. I, I was on the I was in the debt program for almost a year before I finally shipped out. So I had some time to kind of fool around to get some trouble and stuff like that. But yeah, I shipped out in uh, February of two thousand four. I left DFW Airport. Never been on a plane. Um, left DFW in like a flannel shirt, like sixty five degrees fly into Chicago O'Hare and I'm 
standing in about four feet of snow. It's, it's below zero. And some dude's screaming in my face and telling me to get on the fucking bus and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh shit. What did I get myself <laughs> into? <laughs> so I love it. any, any words of advice for anybody looking to go in the, in the Navy? Don't fucking sign up in the wintertime. Chicago absolutely sucks ass in the winter. <laughs> that must have been a big bonus Weird. check, though. At least I hope it was. I got yeah, a, fr- yeah, I got I a mean, friend. I got a friend from Chicago that says, what are you talking about, man? Chicago is, has the greatest weather in the planet. It's the most beautiful place on Earth. And then he pauses and he goes, for one week in the spring and one week in the fall. <laughs> Right. Other than yeah. that, Chicago's horrendous weather. Yeah, yeah, it was it was brutal, dude. And we stayed. I, I had the luck of being in the the barracks that was literally in the back of the base, the farthest from fucking everything. So we had to march in the snow and like fifteen layers of clothes. And and uh, the barracks we were in was the old like steam radiator style heaters, and they would crack the windows at night because it would just get fucking brutally warm in there uh with the windows closed and that was their their favorite thing to do was to make it rain they just pt the shit out of us until it literally just started dripping condensation from that old concrete barrack ceiling so <laughs> yeah that was that was nice but yeah did uh, did boot camp in chicago and then uh in april i shipped out to south carolina and if you've never been to charleston dude they say the mosquito is their state bird and they're not bullshitting like <laughs> uh, the Navy base there outside of Charleston was literally built on an old swamp. There's a, a Naval uh, weapons station and then the, uh, uh, the retreat training school. And uh, yeah, going from the brutal winter of Chicago to the brutal, humid, yeah. giant mosquito spring of, of South Carolina was, was a little culture shock as well too. Yeah, I spent a little time in, in Georgia in the summer, actually in the spring, and I made the mistake of playing softball and I don't even, they weren't mosquitoes, but whatever bugs they were, they got underneath my clothes. I've never been in so much pain from insect bites. It was unbelievable. So I think Georgia will give South Carolina a run for its money. It was, it yeah. was the worst. And I had to ride back. I had to come back home on the plane. My legs were torn up. My arms were torn up. I, I couldn't buy enough medicine to, <laughs> to ease the pain. It was yeah. horrible. So worst thing, you don't even know those stupid things are on you. You're just outside right. having a good time. And then a couple of days later, you're in the, oh, yeah. I, I, I think I have I'm flashbacks. I spent a little time in uh, Savannah. So yeah. ironically enough, I was just talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago, and it's, it's hard to believe in today's uh, time and culture. But when I was stationed in South Carolina, the uh, Ill, uh, tattooing was illegal in the entire state. So uh savannah was the closest place to get tattooed which is only about an hour and a half two hours away from charleston so we used to drive down to savannah and spend the weekend down there partying and getting tattooed and stuff and then go back up that's funny that's odd is it is it still is it still legal i had no idea that was even a thing but uh no they they finally legalized it i think 2006 or 2007 maybe um but i yeah i used to get tattooed by this guy I finally met somebody, you know, like a friend of a friend of a friend type of situation. I met this guy that was tattooing in, in Charleston. He had uh, he had lived in Detroit, had a bunch of tattoo shops in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And he found out that t- 
tattooing was still legal. And I think there was some movement to try to legalize it and, and the state kept squashing it and stuff like that. So he sold all of his stuff in Detroit and moved to Charleston specifically to, to, you know, do some legislature to, to try and get it legalized there. And he had a couple of piercing shops in town and he would tattoo out of the back of those shops in like a little secret room. And Oddly enough, uh, piercing and scarification and branding were legal, but tattooing wasn't. And uh, word started getting around that he was tattooing. So, like, SWAT team would literally wait in the alley behind his shop. And when they heard the tattoo machine fire up, they kicked the door in and arrest him. Um, so he started tattooing out of his house. And that was another weird story I was telling the other night. We were talking about tattoo shops, and I got a bunch of tattoo artist buddies and stuff here. And we were talking about tattoo shops and, and cleanliness and, and hygiene and stuff like that. And I was like, dude, this guy was tattooing me in Charleston one time as we were at his house, probably about 45 minutes out of town. And he had a really nice um, shop set up in one of his spare bedrooms of his house. And um, he was tattooing me on the upper bicep and it, you know, not an especially painful area. So I was mm -hmm. kind of dozing off and, and zoning out, not paying attention. And I feel something tugging on my foot and I look down and there's a goat tugging on my shoestrings <laughs> and he notices it and starts yelling for his wife to come in. They had a pet goat that they kept in the house. But, oh uh, my gosh. Was trying to eat my shoes while I was getting tattooed. So yeah, that's uh that's pretty much South Carolina in a nutshell for you. All right. That may be the, not the first thing you want to see in a tattoo uh, session, but interesting. All right. <laughs> Right. So what, what was your MOS? Uh, so I was machinist mate. Um, I initially signed up. I got a big bonus check. And and when your Navy veterans listen to this podcast, they're probably going to start laughing and talking shit and stuff. But I originally signed up to be a nuke. I was going to be a nuclear engineer. And uh, school is about a year and a half in, in Charleston. You go through um, a school for machinist mate or uh, there's three different nuke rates, electrician, uh, electronics and, and machinist mate and, um, six months of a school. And then six months of what they call power school. You're learning all about the nuclear fission program and literally the math and physics and all that shit behind it. And then you go, uh, they have a couple of, uh, submarines, um, anchored out in the, in the river there. And they're actually functioning nuclear plants on these old decommissioned submarines. And you, wow. um, you do six months, on those on those ships, learning the watch station, learning how to run the plants and all that stuff before they send you out to the fleet. And uh, I made it through A school, made it through power school, uh, the very end of power school testing out. Dude, I was just, uh, I was zoned out. I'm one of those people that if I'm not interested in whatever it is you're trying to teach me, I have a really hard time paying attention and retaining knowledge. And I just, I mean, it's, they're literally taking the, basically the program that they teach at MIT for nuclear fission and nuclear reaction and cramming it into like six months. And I just, I couldn't swallow it. I couldn't retain it and, um, decided that it just wasn't for me and, um, failed out. And they sent me to, uh, like a transient personnel place. I spent like six months there just kind of like picking up trash around base and, you know, bitch work and stuff like that. And then, um, they sent me to um, the conventional fleet. So when you when you go to school for machinist mate, you're basically um, you're just learning like the nuts and bolts, you know. And uh, because I failed out of the nuclear program, 
they didn't send me a nuke ship. They sent me to a steamship, um, which I was on the Iwo Jima, USS Iwo Jima. Um, kind of sort of looks like an aircraft carrier, but a little bit smaller, an LHD yeah. amphibious assault ship, if you're right. familiar. Also, we carried kilos, harriers, and then we had a submersible well deck. We carried hovercraft, and we carried about 2,500 Marines. Right. And um, that was the last new steamship in the Navy. She was commissioned in 2001. She had two um, 700 PSI modified D-type boilers, and um, I learned... I learned the whole steam system. So I got uh, assigned to the, the uh, chemistry lab. So we were responsible for all the chemistry and testing and quality and transfer and all that stuff for all of the uh, water, whether it was potable water or uh, feed water for the plant, um, oil and fuel. And then we had some, some auxiliary duties like, uh, you know, a couple of backup generators and, um, pumping the bilges and shit like that. So, so yeah, I was, uh, I was kind of like, um, a cast away from the nuclear community and, you know, being a, being a nuke is like the top nerd position in the Navy. Like those guys are all playing fucking world of Warcraft and Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and shit like that. They're the nerds of the fucking nerds. Um, that's why I was saying your Navy viewers are probably going to laugh their ass off. So I, I just didn't fit into that community. Um, so it kind of worked out going, going to the uh, conventional steam fleet was more, more my speed. Well, we're, we're, uh, commonly referred to as knuckle draggers or, you know, deck apes and stuff like that. We're, you know, playing in the bilge and getting elbow, getting, getting neck deep and, and fuel and shit like that. That was a, that was a little more my speed. So I was kind of glad that things worked out the way they did. Were you, were you still in the Atlantic or were you in the <laughs> Pacific? Uh, no, I was Atlantic. I got stationed in Norfolk uh, when oh, I left. In Virginia, when I left. okay. Yeah, when I left uh, South Carolina, they sent me to Norfolk, and it's uh, pretty much when you're when you're when you're destined to go to Norfolk, you're pretty much stuck there for your career. It's it's very difficult to go anywhere else after that. So yeah, I did uh, did six years on the Iwo Jima. I was supposed to get off a little after four, and uh, we were getting ready to go on another deployment. I'd done two tours through the Med into the Middle East, and um, our last tour was going to be, or my last tour was going to be down to Central and South America on like a humanitarian aid. We went to Haiti right after the earthquake and the hurricane and all that stuff back in, uh, I think that was 2009, 2010. Um, yeah, I was supposed to get off the boat before that and go to shore duty. And uh, we had a bunch of turnover with uh, uh, division officers and, and chiefs and stuff like that. So I had worked my way up to like top qualification in my shop and um basically what what they call the oil king he's he's responsible like ultimately responsible for all of the the chemistry and quality and stuff like that of all the fuel and water and oil um and that's supposed to be qualification for either the the chief the e7 or the the divo that's running that shop and we didn't have one hadn't had one for a while so i got that qualification and uh just a couple of weeks before I was supposed to go to shore duty, um, my uh, my chief engineer, the department head, my chief, and a couple other folks came down to the shop and kicked everybody out. And I'm about to walk out, and he's like, "Martin, no, stay here." I'm like, "Oh shit, what did I do? I don't, I don't really remember doing anything." And uh, sure as shit, the CO walked in. So I'm like, "Oh shit, I like I really messed up." And uh, 
he says, um, Martin, I hear you're going to shore duty. As I guess, like, yes, sir, I'm supposed to supposed to transfer off in a couple of weeks before you guys leave for deployment and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, nope, nope, you're not going anywhere. You're going on deployment with us. So I got to do uh, got to do one more one more deployment. Uh, I think it was about five and a half months. We went to stopped in in a uh, couple of spots in Florida and then hit Gitmo on the way down. And then we hit like 15 countries in Central and South America in like five months and, and turned around and came back. Um, See, so yeah, I did did six years on the Iwo Jima and then uh, transferred off and went to shore duty in the uh, Norfolk Naval Shipyards outside machine shop. So we basically what we did was. Uh, anything that the the ship's personnel couldn't fix if it was too big or too complicated or too time consuming or whatever they'd call the shipyard in so we'd go in and and fix all the big stuff so i spent a couple of years doing that in the shipyards before i got transferred out it's pretty cool yeah so so about what time see so you, you did about what eight years nine years yeah about nine so i actually had i re-enlisted when i was on deployment uh when i was still on the ship um, I thought when I signed up for the nuclear program, they were supposed to have supposed to be a four year sign up and then a two year extension for your, um, sign on bonus and stuff like that. So in my head, I still had like another year, year and a half or something like that on my enlistment. And, um, <clears throat> my, um, department master chief came down to the shop one day and he was like, Hey, Martin, are you staying in? Or are you going to reenlist? And I was like, ah, yeah, I hadn't really decided yet, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I need an answer by tomorrow. I'm like, tomorrow? I still got like a year left. And he's like, no, no, you got two days left. I'm like, what? I was like, I got an extension on my service record. And he's like, nope, you got no extension. I just went up to personnel and double checked when they they brought your paperwork to, down to me. He's like, you uh, you either re-enlist tomorrow or you're out. I'm like, well, shit, uh, I don't have any other plans. Like, I guess I'm re-enlisting. Ah. So, uh, <laughs> I kind of was forced into re-enlisting and they brought me a cake and uh, we went to the bowling alley the next day. The shop got off work for going to the bowling alley for me and re-enlisting. So I guess it kind of worked out. Um, Dude, when yeah, I was so, uh, on my first duty station, I was, uh, I was in uh, Germany and uh, I was in an armored, armored cavalry regiment. And uh, I was like, I did not want to be an armored scout on a Bradley. I, I hated it. Um, I spent part of my time in the, um, in the like, uh, personnel shop when I first got there. And so I got to know our Sergeant major really well, this old crusty dude, Vietnam vet. And, uh, so I was down in scout platoon one day and, and working on the Bradley and Sergeant major Braggs comes down and says, Hey, are you re-enlisting? We really need scouts like you, you know, you're pretty good. Blah, blah. I said, man, there's no way I'm re-enlisting none. I'm going to college. I'm getting out. I got a family. I, there's no way. We had just gotten back from Bosnia for a year. And he uh, he said, come on, man, what, what it'll take? And I said, all right, I'll go to, if you can get me orders to Hawaii, I'll, I'll stay in. About three days later, I'm underneath the Bradley and I hear <laughs> at ease. And so I'm, I'm scooting out on the mechanic roller thing. And uh, he walks up to me and before I could even stand up, he slammed my orders down on my chest. And he's like, hey, you're going to Hawaii. I expect you to be re-enlisted in, in 72 hours. So, okay. Oh, well. I went home. I was <laughs> like, Hey, uh, I guess we're going to Hawaii. Uh, yeah, I'm not getting out of the army. I just re-enlisted. So wow. similar, similar story, but, uh, you know, 
What do you do? Never, yeah, step, right. never step foot back on a Bradley. I re-enlisted a couple times and I never was. I stayed light my entire, for scouts in the army, you can be armored or light. And uh, I never went back to an armored, armored pl- platoon. So How come you didn't like the Bradley? I am a little bit claustrophobic. All right. And uh, I think I told this story when I was um, on my episode a couple of years ago. But uh, so when I went to the recruit, I'll make this fast. When I went to the recruiting station, my dad said, you know, nothing, don't go infantry. Whatever you do, son, don't go infantry. I said, okay. So, and I had a pretty high ASVAB score. And so I get into the, the MEP station and the guy prints out, you know, on the old dot matrix printer, like 200 MOSs I qualified yeah. for. And I said, okay. First one on there, because it's in number order, 11 Bravo. I go, what's that? Guy goes, oh, that's infantry. That's really cool. I said, no, no, no. My dad said I can't be infantry. I said, you know what? I grew up always wanting to be a firefighter. Can we have a, is there a firefighter job? And the guy looked it up and he said, you know what? It was at a time when the army actually, they've reversed it now, but on post, they switched to like civilian fire departments on the posts for a while. Now, now you can go in as a fireman now in the army again, from what I understand. But when I was going in, they had just like outphased that MOS. He's like, no, no, we don't have any fire guys. I was like, all right, well, what's next? And he's like, I don't remember what it was, whatever it was. And I go, eh, that sounds like infantry. <laughs> and he said, okay, well, what about this one? He goes, 19 Delta cavalry scout. I was like, cavalry. Like horses, he goes, yeah, but they don't ride horses anymore. Let me show you this video. So he, he plugs this video in and it sees dudes in ghillie suits, you know, and the narrator's like, your primary mission as a cavalry scout is to support the, the drug enforcement uh, agency on the Mexican-American border and fight drug cartels and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dude, that sounds like cool. you can go to sniper school and there's dudes repelling out of helicopters. The video was like 30 minutes long, didn't show a Bradley in it. Not once, I promise you. <laughs> so then, so then I get to basic training. I'm there for like week one, right? So they march us out to the motor pool, and out comes this Bradley. They do this whole like, you know, presentation. The thing's spinning, the guns going up and down, the missile launchers coming up, the backs popping open. Right? They're like, hey, uh, as a 19 Delta, your pri- your primary fighting vehicle is the Bradley fighting vehicle. And I I looked at my drill sergeant and I said, whoa. whoa, whoa not what I signed up for. He goes, really? I said, yeah, man, this is not, I am claustrophobic. There's no way I can drive this thing. I don't like being in the back of it. The turret freaks me out. So they took me down to the personnel office and uh drill sergeant. And I mean, as you guys hear the story, you know, what's happening, but he t- he walks me in some major. Hey, sir, this is private Woodbury. He said he's claustrophobic. He's in the wrong job. Oh, and the guy goes, oh, come on in, Private Woodbury. Let me help you out. Let me look. And he pulls out my personnel file or whatever, you know, and he's looking through it. And he looks confused, turns it around. He goes, hey, did you sign? Is this your signature? I said, "Uh, yes, sir. It's my signature. And then he just commenced to unload on me. Son, (laughs) you signed up to be a 19 Delta and you will get on any vehicle we tell you to get on. You know, we don't care if you're claustrophobic or what. I mean, he goes off and then, you know, the drill sergeant walks back in. Everybody in the personnel office is like giggling as they march me out of there and this major screaming at me. But and then lo and behold, my first duty station was 1-1 Cav in Germany, full armored cavalry regiment, Bradley platoon. As I, <laughs> no way I was staying on. I hated it. I hated every I, you're supposed to. 
I'm getting way off track here, but you're supposed to get, you know, like uh, the newest private is the scout in the back, like the loader. Then, you know, then you move up to driver, then you move up to gunner in the turret, and then you move to to um, track commander in the turret, right? And uh, I I was an E4, and they were like, hey, man, do you want to drive? I was like, nope, I'd rather sit in the back and walk around. So I was the, like, senior scout that would go sit out in the OP, you know, in a ghillie suit for days on end. They're like, Hey man, it's your turn to be a, um, like a gunner. Like you need to get promoted to gunner. And so they sent us to the uh, simulator, all the E4 so that the sergeants could pick their gunners. And, uh, I missed every target. They're like, (laughs) they're like, what are you doing? My, my, my command, my, uh, his name was Sergeant Cannon, Ashton Cannon was the, my track commander. And he was like, bro, like, and, and our gunner was like PCSing it out. And he was like, dude, I, I need you to be our gunner. And, and he, they like took down and they take this whole like gunnery, fake gunnery through the, through the simulator. I missed every target. I got a zero. And they're like, dude, we know, you know what you're doing. Like stop missing the target. I was like, I, it freaks me out. I can't be in the turret, you know? And I, so I stayed my whole scout platoon life all the way to the time I PCS. I stayed in the back of the Bradley. I was a loader slash scout that got out and with a radio on his back and like humped around. And most guys that are in armor battalions don't want to get off the Bradley. I was like, let me out of here. So <laughs> that's my funny story. But anyway, so when did you yeah. start thinking about being a, a, a jerky guy and a pickle guy? When did you start looking at recipes? I know it was while you were in the Navy. Yeah, man. I, I, uh, when I was growing up, like I said, we grew up, really poor and uh never really left texas i think we went to florida a couple times on vacation um but i you know didn't have any any worldly culture behind me or anything like that um so joining the military was was obviously a big culture shock for me and then uh getting to go overseas on deployment was like you know that was the ultimate culture shock so you know, I find myself my my first point. My first deployment was my best one, dude. We hit uh, we hit France, two different places in France twice, um, Italy twice. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Anthony Bourdain's shows and watched any of his stuff, but if you've seen the one where he was in Lebanon when the Hezbollah and the Israelis started firing rockets back and forth at each other from from Beirut, to, yeah, yeah. So we were actually off the coast of Lebanon with uh, the USS Nashville. The Nashville was the one that uh, that uh, picked up Bourdain and his crew. Uh, oh, wow. So we, we were evacuating Americans out of Beirut and uh, taking them down to this little island in the Med called Cyprus, little Greek, Greek-owned island, and uh, flying them back to the States. Um, so, yeah, my first deployment, like I said, France, Italy. Spain, Cyprus, Lebanon, um, went through the Suez and hit Dubai, Bahrain, Kuwait, Jordan, you know, so I, I go from little town, middle of freaking nowhere, Texas to all these places. And so which one is your favorite? Um, man, that's a hard one. Um, probably I'd say for culture and experience, Israel, um, my second deployment we went back and we actually pulled into to Haifa, Israel, and uh, 
So the first day we were in Israel, uh, the first morning I had duty the night that we got there. And that next morning I get off duty and we get to go out in town and we catch a cab and we're riding up into the, the main part of Haifa is like up in this, up in the top of these mountains. And the cab driver is taking us up this little back road from the, from the little port we were um, anchored in or uh, moored, moored up to. And there's literally a fucking rocket stuck in the side of the mountain, un, unexploded, just stuck in the side of the mountain. And I'm like, holy shit, dude, uh, you guys going to do anything about that? And he's, I'm not even going to try an Israeli accent. He's like, no, no, we leave it there for a reminder. I'm like, holy shit, dude. Um, so we get up into Haifa and we, uh, we spent a couple of days in Haifa kind of bumming around and stuff like that. And then we did, uh, we did like a little tour excursion thing and jumped on a bus for about two hours and went to Jerusalem and got to see the Gaza strip and go into Jerusalem and everything. And, and it was really surreal for me to see, uh, I'm not a very religious person or anything, but to see all this this stuff that's so significant to so many people across the entire world, literally in the middle of a war zone. I mean, there's guys walking around with grenades and and M4s and and stuff hanging off their belts. And they're just like, they're just your general security guards and people that are coming there, you know, to the, to the Mecca, to the homeland, to, to visit the, the crucifix and to visit the, the cave that, you know, Jesus supposedly woke up in and all this stuff. And, and it was just so surreal to have been there not even a year prior and to, to literally see rockets hitting and blowing stuff up and then to be there and see everybody just living their normal life. Like people are walking around, hanging out, going to bars, getting food, grocery shopping, like these people have just been living like that for so many thousands of years that it's just normal everyday life for them. Um, so yeah, in terms of, of, of culture and experience and and stuff like that, definitely Israel, um, for food, um, Italy, dude, I, I'm, okay, such, yeah, can't, can't dude, beat I'm Italy. such a freaking Italian food snob now. Like I refuse to go get Italian food with my wife unless it's like, these people are like, you know, dente and yeah, legit. first generation off the boat, like barely <laughs> speak English. You know what's? It's interesting that you say that. You know your story about Hafa. Um, am I saying that right? Hafa, Hafa, Haifa, Haifa. But that's. Um, I mean, even back to the Crusades. I mean, that was a that was a Templar uh, naval port for a right. long time. They held they held um, that port for a very long time, even after they lost Jerusalem. So there's been conflict there for generations upon generations it's interesting but my wife's my wife's best friend her husband they're uh they're um lds mormons and Mm -hmm. uh he went on his mormon mission to italy so it is absolutely no fun (laughs) to go out to dinner with these guys because it's you know if you go to some italian place it's always he's always critical of the pasta and like how well that's not traditional you know because we get a lot of in america you get a lot of I call it uh, Sopranos Italian, right. you know, yeah. where it's very, uh, you know, chicken Parmesan and, and uh, you know, whatever, yeah. Parmesan, you know, New York Italian kind of food, which is amazing, too, but it's not yeah. traditional Italian food. Well, this yeah. is this is exactly why I go to the Olive Garden, because when you're at the Olive Garden, 
your family. And yeah. I feel like it's an authentic yeah. Italian experience to go to the Olive Garden. And dude, that's you know, it's just me. That's the, the first <laughs> thing my wife does if I like if I'm going out of town for a weekend or something like that. The first thing my wife does when I leave the house is is either go to or order delivery Olive Garden. She freaking loves it. And I absolutely dude, I haven't stepped foot in an Olive Garden in like 15 years. It's so freaking you know, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Some some people are like that. I I get to travel with my with my job. And uh, for some reason, I got stuck with the same guy for a couple of years in a row. And we were in Korea. We were in Seoul. And this dude, we walked up and down the street. And I'm looking at all these like Korean restaurants. I'm like, hey, let's go to some like actual Korean place and get some real, you know, Korean food. And he's like, no, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And then finally, he sees an Outback Steakhouse. And, and he's like, well, how about, how about Outback? I'm like, like, I was trying to be nice, you know, because I'm, and I was like, okay, whatever. But this dude wanted to go to Outback Steakhouse. And we're in Seoul, Korea. I'm like. What the? F- what is wrong with you? And did, he, you he did yeah, it to me a couple other times too. It's have nuts. you ever seen The Office? The, yeah. Did yeah. you watch The Office? Do you remember when yeah. Michael Scott goes to tomorrow? Uh, yeah, to tomorrow's yeah. in <laughs> yeah. uh, in uh, Times Square. He's like, oh, this really authentic pizza place in Times Square. It's it's the like, best give in me town. An authentic New York <laughs> slice. Yeah, and it's tomorrow's right. the mall <laughs> yeah. pizza. I love that's it. That's uh my second deployment. We went to Bahrain like seven freaking times. And I don't if you guys have never been to Bahrain, there's there's literally nothing. Like there's the base. Um on the base, they have this little place called uh the Desert Dome, and it's like this outdoor amphitheater type little area where they've got a little walk-up bar and they do like cover bands and stuff. So you can go to the desert dome and and, you know, get watched by everybody on base where you proceed to try to booze and have a good time. Um, when you walk right out of the main gates for base is what they call American Alley. And it's like Chili's and Applebee's and McDonald's and all that shit. So, yeah, uh, we spent a lot of time in, in Bahrain eating. So when you go to when you go to like Popeye's or, or Burger King or something like that in the Middle East, you're not eating beef and chicken. You're eating either camel or you know whatever the hell they have and if you're getting chicken from like popeyes or something it's usually guinea so surprisingly not bad i'll, I'll admit that i ate quote fried, unquote, american food more times than i care to admit fried guinea but, i love it oh, yeah so as you're traveling the world you start to get ideas for recipes and flavors and get a passion for for what you're doing now is that kind of how that started yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't really cook a whole lot. I mean, I, you know, made, made mom's recipes and stuff like that, that I grew up with, you know, I'm, like I said, I didn't get along real well, real well with my dad when I was a kid. So I was kind of a mama's boy and, and, uh, she taught me, I was, you know, the, the quintessential kid standing on a chair at the stove, learning how to cook when I was five or six years old. And, um, like I said, we were really poor. So we always grew a giant garden every year. And, you know, we ate whatever the hell we could grow. And then towards the end of the season, we would start canning and pickling and all that stuff and put up, you know, several hundred jars of everything from pickles to tomatoes and tomato sauce and all that stuff to keep us going through the winter. Um, So I never really had much exposure to anything else and getting to go to all these places and eat all this weird stuff kind of opened up my eyes to, you know, other foods and other cultures and, and like going to Dubai in the middle of Ramadan and seeing how, you know, religion affects what you eat and what, what kind of climate you're in and all that kind of stuff and all these different things. And I had no idea played part in 
what went on your plate, you know, just really started to spark some curiosity. And I'd get home from deployment and start trying to, to look things up and remember what, what it was that I ate and where it was and try to find recipes. And when we would go to different places, if, if I could find the, the local market, I would go and buy a bunch of different spices and herbs and teas and coffee and just whatever the hell I could get my hands on and snacks and, you know, all this weird stuff that I'd never seen before and come home and start trying to play with it. And, um, like I said, growing up, uh, we, we always made pickles. We, we canned and jarred and, and put up anything we could get our hands on that would, you know, go in a jar and last the winter. Um, so I, I had a pretty good concept of how to, to pickle and can. And my mom, when, uh, when we had a few extra dollars to spare, she would make beef jerky. And like I was saying earlier, before we started recording, it's, uh, it's not as cheap as people think it is. It's, it's kind of hard right. to believe you know, why that bag of jerky sitting on the shelf is eight or nine or 10 or 12 bucks or whatever. But, um, when you're talking about the labor that goes into it and the, the marinade time and the trimming and the slicing and the dehydrating and how much weight it loses when you dehydrate, it's, it's a, it's a bit expensive snack. It's, a, it's not a cheap hobby. Um, and I, I would actually get in trouble when I was a kid. I'd go to school, you know, it was in elementary school and stuff like that, especially when it's cold outside and you're wearing a flannel shirt. And my mom would cut up little pieces of jerky for me, little bite-sized pieces, and I'd put it in my shirt pocket. And I'd get in trouble in class because teachers thought I was chewing gum, but I was like sneaking little pieces of jerky out of my pocket and snacking in class and stuff. Dude, that um, might be the greatest story I have ever heard. <laughs> I was I was getting busted for chewing gum, but actually it was just homemade jerky. Right. And teachers you are, are freaking you're out. A red, they think you're, I'm swallowing my gum, but you're a true redneck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I might be it. from might be from the country. Um, but yeah, it'd been a few years, you know, after being in the Navy and stuff like that, that I'd had really good jerky like that. So I was asking my mom one day about her recipe of what she used and hers was, you know, it was good, but it was really basic. And I think it was either for my birthday or Christmas one year, she bought me this little cheap ass plastic meat slicer from like Walmart and bought me one of those little round dehydrators that you can like make homemade fruit roll-ups and stuff on. And was it, right, a, was, right, it Ron, and was it Ronco? I think, Ronco? I think that was the brand of that. Ronco Peel? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So she sent me one of those and I started playing around with jerky and, and, uh, you know, obviously being from Texas, everybody knew that we had a name for barbecue. So, um, it was always my responsibility to either grill or, you know, smoke a brisket or something like that when we had get togethers. And I really started just, just realizing how much I enjoyed cooking and, and, discovering that for me it wasn't necessarily so much about eating the food and and what i made i mean obviously that's important you want it to be good but but to to put so much time and effort into something like smoking a brisket for 16 hours you know getting up at the crack of dawn and sitting out there and living the real hard life of drinking beer before the sun comes up and and stuff like that you know and then your buddy's coming over and, and getting a chunk of this brisket or, you know, this jerky or whatever it is that you worked on all day and seeing the smile on their face is what, what really opened me up. And I started to make the connections between, 
you know, happiness and food and culture and food, like I said, getting to go to all those places and see the different things that people eat and go into these little hole in the wall places or, you know, grabbing a kebab off of the street or something like that. And, and the little, basically what we called little Baghdad in, in Marseille, France and, and putting together all these things and realizing that, that, food and culture and happiness and and way of life and all that stuff really go hand in hand like you can't you can't have any of those things without the other um so i think that's like i said i I grew up gardening and and doing a mild amount of farming and cooking and stuff like that but i didn't really start realizing how much it mattered and and what a passion for it, it that i had until until I got to travel the world and and put all those pieces together. So that's when, you know, I'd always been into hot rods and mechanics and stuff like that. So I thought I'd get out of the Navy and, you know, be this badass hot rod builder or mechanic or whatever. And then it just started to, to dawn on me that I enjoy those things, but I didn't have a passion for them. You know what I mean? And then that I, I started to realize that, that food is what really like really made me happy. Like you have the worst day in the world, you know, your girlfriend left you and you got fired or your dog got ran over, or, you know, whatever the hell it is, but you come home and you crack a beer and you make something, you, you cook some food and somebody gets a bite of it and they just have this pure, like innocent joy on their face of, of whatever it was that you cooked and how relaxing it was to cook and how much gratification you can get out of making somebody else happy by just giving them something to eat is what, you know, really opened my eyes and made me realize that, it, that that's something that I wanted to pursue. Very cool. That's awesome. I know you got out of the Navy and then you had another career before you started high seas jerky, right? Right. So I had, um, kind of circling back to before, um, I had another, I think a year and a half or two years or something like that left on my enlistment when I was in the shipyards after I got off of uh, sea duty. And, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar or not with, uh, what the Navy called the ERB, the enlistment review board, um, was something that they did towards the end of 2011, 2012. Um, basically what it, what it shook down to was the, the current, administration up on Capitol Hill realized that we had too much money in the military and the Department of Defense and whatnot, and we needed to make some cutbacks. And uh, Bullseye was basically put mostly on the Navy. They they got rid of a few jarheads, you know, being Department of the Navy. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but Marine stands for my ass rides and Navy equipment. Yes, it uh, does. Yes, it does. <laughs> But, uh, but anyway, they took, uh, they took all these rates that were overmanned, um, mine being one of them, and um, they had a, a review board of 33 um, uh, enlisted, um, senior enlisted and officers sit down and look at service records. And if you didn't have any critical NECs, uh, you know, qualifications and stuff like that, or you had you know, any blemishes or anything like that on your service record, then, then you were basically placed on a chopping block and, um, everybody between, I think it was six and 16 years was on the chopping block. 
Um, and uh, like I said, I was machinist mate, um, conventional steam Navy. And uh, the ship that I was on was the last new steamship in the Navy. Everything built after her after 2001 was either gas turbine, nuclear or diesel. And uh, sending us machinist mates, our, our, our steam mechanics back to school for gas turbine or diesel was going to be a lot more expensive than just bringing in new boots and sending them straight to whatever school they needed. Um, so among a couple of other rates, they put out, uh, 5,000 of us machinist mates in 2012, they basically came and and said, Hey, uh, your number, your number came up. Um, we're giving you six months, you get terminal leave. Um, you know, we're going to give you a little severance check based on your time and service and time and rate and, uh, adios. So I basically went, you know, at this point, I'm getting close to 10. It's, you know, reenlistment's coming up here shortly. I'm like, you know, I'm halfway. I might as well go ahead and make this a career. And then to just have, you know, basically the, the carpet drug out from underneath you was, uh, was a little bit of a culture shock. Um, I turned into a, a real drunk, a real asshole for about six months there, you know, just trying to process. I mean, I, I went in at 18 other than flipping burgers for a few months here and there in high school and stuff like that. And working around the house is the only thing I'd ever known. It was my only, my only career, my only job, my only life. And for you to quit is one thing, but for somebody to come to you and tell you that you're done, whether you like it or not, was, uh, that was a little bit to swallow. Um, yeah, that's rough. So luckily I had, uh, we had, you know, they had some of those recruiters working for us, those civilian guys that, you know, try to help you transfer and blah, blah, blah. So I, they flew me down to Texas a couple of times for a couple of different places and ended up landing on this job, uh, here outside of Fort Worth because, you know, mom was still here and I wanted to get back to being close to her. And reluctantly, my new wife at the time agreed to go to Texas, even though she's from Cleveland and from a very long line of, of old school Brooklyn Jews and like her dad's a vegan and plays jazz music and all this stuff. So like Texas <laughs> was basically like hell for her whole family. So they were, they were a little upset at me for a little while, but I think they've, they've kind of settled in now, but yeah, I, I ended up coming back to DFW and uh, getting a job at a heavy machinery shop, working on forklifts and stuff like that and hanging around there for a while. And, didn't really like it, but you know, it was, it was okay at paying the bills. Wasn't the greatest, but I was back home and making friends and took a little bit of my severance check and bought me a 53 Chevy hot rod and, and was kind of, you know, settling in more or less. And, um, then I, I lost that job and, uh, got on on another place at an air compressor company and, and worked my way up to, to managing there, you know, I was turning wrenches on heavy equipment for a long time and, you know, working in the shop with no, no climate control or anything like that. And, you know, literally just busted knuckles. Um, and then found my way in the office. And I thought that was going to be like, that was going to be the dream job. Do you get to sit in the air conditioning behind the desk, tell everybody else what to do all day, you know, I mean, not out in the elements and the weather and busting your ass and everything. And I, very soon came to realize that I'm not cut out for corporate office life. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, uh, um, kind of came up busting knuckles and, and cracking jokes and, and, uh, playing pranks and stuff like that. And 
um, being one of very few veterans in a, in a, in an office and, and very bureaucratic political, you know, like the quintessential office workplace, um, just didn't really get along with everybody too well, especially being the manager and having to tell people what to do and stuff like that. It, uh, was there something in particular that, that made you one day sit down and go, man, I got to start my own company or was it just a accumulation of working in, you know, some sort of a corporate environment? I mean, was there a day you just had an epiphany or, or anything like that? Uh, not, I would say it was more gradual than anything. I think it was that the, the hate kind of flowed through me as, you know, they would say <laughs> on star Wars, being star Wars fans. Um, it just started to really grow inside of me and realize that, you know, whether it was busting knuckles in the shop or sitting in the office, I just wasn't, I wasn't cut out for this Monday through Friday, nine to five stuff. And, um, I'd started to play with jerky a little bit more and started, you know, giving some to friends. And, and it's the thing that you hear all the time. People are like, Oh man, this is really good. You should open a restaurant, blah, blah, blah. And you got to take that stuff with a grain of salt because they're your friends and your family and and stuff. So I never really thought that I was going to do that. I, I more or less saw myself figuring out a way to go, um, you know, use the GI bill and go to culinary school and find a job in a restaurant and, and, you know, work my way up from dishwasher or whatever. But I, I kind of glamorized that in my mind. And then the more I looked into it and the more people I met, and the more people I talked to and, you know, watching TV and seeing people like Anthony Bourdain talk about it and stuff like that, I, I realized that was going to be even worse. You know, that's going to be even longer hours, even worse shit work, yeah. you know? and stuff like that. And, and I, I just didn't really, I didn't really know where I was going to go. I know I wanted, or I knew I wanted to do something with food. I just didn't really exactly know what or how. And, um, I decided to make some jerky one day. There was this big car show coming up, uh, over in Dallas. It's all vintage, like pre 1964 stuff, you know, hot rods and, and stuff like that. And, um, my buddy was like, dude, this jerky is really good. You know, you should take some to the car show and see if you could sell it. I was like, oh, that's, that's not a bad idea. So I made a couple of small batches and like put them in little sandwich backies and took them with me. And I didn't sell any. I just started handing them to friends and people were like, dude, this shit's like, it's really freaking good. You know, you should like figure out how to package this and and sell it. Um, so I hit up a tattoo artist buddy of mine and he made me this little crude kind of logo type thing. And I figured out how to make these little labels on my, my computer at home and got these little um, bullshit stickers from like office max and started putting them on these bags. And dude, next thing I know, like people are blowing me up. They're hitting me up. They're texting me. They're hitting me up on Facebook. I started a little Facebook business page and, and it's like starting to really gain some traction. So I'm like, you know, maybe I should put a little more effort into this. So I started buying some bigger equipment, making bigger batches, playing with recipes. And, um, right about that time, this was probably five or six years ago. I met a couple of buddies, like same circle of friends and everything. And they were kind of in the same position I was with barbecue. They had made really good barbecue. Everybody kept telling them, you know, you should sell this, you should open a restaurant, blah, blah, blah. 
So they bought a big barbecue trailer and they started to do um, some catering and do some events and stuff like that. And same thing for them. It just started growing and growing. They get more and more requests and more and more people. And uh, one of our mutual friends hit them up one day. She was a property manager for her dad and had a bunch of of, uh, different like shopping centers and office buildings and stuff like that here in the area. And she said, Hey, this, uh, this lady just defaulted on her lease um, in this little place over in Hearst. It's a little town between Dallas and, and Fort Worth about 20 minutes from here. She's like, she had this little kitchen. She did like home style cooking, blah, blah, blah. You guys should come check it out. So we went over and looked at it and it's, it's small. Um, and it was kind of crude, you know, she threw a little bit of money at it, but you could tell she did it on a budget. Um, it's in this little kind of rundown shopping center with a dollar store and a bingo hall and stuff like that, you know, and like some kind of methy looking apartments behind it. So what that all boiled down to was cheap rent. Yeah. Um, right. So, so we all went out for beers after and we're like, dude, should we do this? And we're like, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to get another opportunity like this. Um, so we went ahead, pulled the trigger, signed the lease. And, um, I realized like this, this might be something, you know, like I might, I might be able to do this. I might be able to pull this off. Um, so I hit up another same thing one of our friends circle of friends um that does advertising and marketing and stuff like that for a living does you know works for this big ad agency over in dallas like like mad men style you know um doing art for billboards and magazines and and social media and all this stuff and he's done a lot of our friends small businesses and tattoo shops and salons and everything so i hit him up and he started working on kind of um unclip arting my, my logo and my packaging and stuff and, and taking a little step beyond whatever crap I could find on Google and PowerPoint and uh, made me these really badass uh, logos and, and design packaging and everything. And, and dude, it's pretty much, it's, it's pretty much just taken off since then. Like once, once we got in to that commercial kitchen and got all set up and got inspected and got legal and, and, you know, got a business license and all that stuff. I literally haven't looked back. Um, so how, and I was, how, how difficult was sorry, that transition? Cause I mean, I imagine there's a lot of work that goes into starting a food company. I mean, was that a difficult process? Dude, unbelievable. Like getting a space up to par, um, and getting the right equipment, getting um getting your co from the city getting the fire marshal getting you know your your fire suppression stuff for your vena hood and everything um health inspection like all the so i i have i don't i don't have a a restaurant or a, a, a retail space per se but i have a a manufacturing kitchen so getting the manufacturing license and dude like <laughs> i you you think the the military and the government is red tape they don't take your money. Like, you you know, the military's hard enough red tape, but you're not having to pay for any of that stuff. All this other stuff I'm talking about, dude, it's $150 the year, $600 there, you know, wait two weeks for this, tell you, no, you need this. You got to buy this. You got to hire a contractor to have this put in because you don't have a license to do it yourself. It's unbelievable. But like I said, luckily I had a couple of buddies that, that went in on it with me. We had, you know, a, a place that wasn't, the most ideal real estate and and stuff like that. So luckily rent was cheap. 
Um, and we all still had day jobs. All three of us still had day jobs. So we, you know, we were able to finance this stuff and, and literally just work nights and weekends to get this place up to par and, and get in there and start getting to rolling and start cranking some stuff out. And, um, I, like I said, I still had the day job. Um, and I was, you know, once we got it up and running and rolling and everything there, there there's only so much you can do as far as marketing and events and stuff like that. When you've got the day job that commands, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60 or however many hours a week that you're working. So I was cranking some stuff out. I was selling some stuff through social media and everything doing a couple of little, you know, car shows and bike shows and stuff like that here and there. Um, and then it started picking up and it started picking up gradually at first. And then it started like really picking up and, um, doing a lot of events, doing a lot of pop-ups and stuff like that. And we would help each other out, you know, I'd go help my buddies do barbecue catering. They would help me with, with jerky's, uh, production and pickles and started getting into hot sauces and stuff like that. And, um, then uh one day we we got a uh, another like mutual friend was working for the subscription box company and she hit up my buddy one day and was like hey we're putting together a subscription box of hot sauce do you know anybody that's got a really good hot sauce he's like yeah my my business partner my buddy that I share the kitchen with and she just trusted him and we didn't have to send samples or anything. And next thing I know, like three days later, I've got a PO for 4,000 bottles of hot sauce that I need to have done next Holy month. Crap. And I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, how's this going to work? So, uh, again, literally, like nights and weekends, like get off of work at five, drive an hour across town and rush hour and work on hot sauce until 11 or midnight come home, catch a couple hours of snooze and a shower, get up, go back to work and do it all over again. So I humped like that, um, for about a year and a half. And, um, like I said, things were, things were picking up, but it wasn't quite to the point where I was, um, self-sustaining or anything mm -hmm. like that yet. Um, and as things got more successful for my business and my buddy's businesses, the the hate and the discontent for the day job grew deeper. And I just, I woke up every morning pissed off and upset and already depressed and in a bad mood about going to the day job and having to deal with these whiny ass civilians that don't know what a hostile work environment is. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not transiting the Straits of Hormuz at two o'clock in the morning and having guys come at you in John boats with barrels of diesel and rpgs like you're fuck you didn't have any coffee to put in the coffee pot like shut up and fucking sit down you know what i mean <laughs> so those those little managerial pep talks that i gave didn't go over so well with with hr obviously um so the writing started started presenting itself on the wall um late last year and then uh Right at New Year's, um, my wife had to go in and have a surgical procedure done, <clears throat> and she ended up catching COVID in the hospital and brought it home. I got it a few days later. We were both, you know, pretty sick, but not not awful. I've I've been sicker. And um then we had that giant freeze here in Texas, and I'm mm -hmm. sure you guys saw all over the news, and it was oh, yeah. just utter chaos and 
having to work from home and all of my bosses and my, you know, chain of command and everything for the day job was up in Virginia. So they're just completely detached. They had no idea what was going on here. And, 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 you know, it was just, like I said, that hate and the discontent was just growing deeper and deeper and deeper. And, um, my parents, um, my, my mom and my stepdad ended up getting COVID and got it like really bad. And, um, my stepdad, after a couple of weeks, ended up having to go to the hospital and he lasted in the hospital for almost two months. And uh, COVID, COVID got him. Uh, we lost my stepdad in March. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, right towards the end of March. Um, wow. And that was kind of my writing on the wall. Um, my stepdad worked for Walmart for almost 22 years and my parents lived an okay life. You know, they didn't, they weren't hurting for anything. They had, you know, they had decent cars. They had a decent place to live. They had a boat, you know, my stepdad had a motorcycle. They, they weren't living high and mighty, but they were doing okay. But that's all they did. They worked. They didn't go to go on vacation. They didn't get to go, you know, they didn't get to do stuff. They didn't get to, to see the world. My mom's literally never been on a plane before, you know, and, and they were, had a lot of uh, physical ailments and stuff like that from just a life of manual labor and, and working for the man. And Walmart's not exactly the best employer. And um, so it just kind of clicked with me. And I was like, dude, uh, you know, I, I love my stepdad and I, I really miss him, obviously, but I don't want to wind up in that situation where I'm in my late fifties and you, you know, dedicated your life to this company and you got shit to show for it, but a paycheck every two weeks, you know, right. that's it. Like you got, you got nothing. Um, so I finally decided that I just, I had to go like, this is it. You know, it's, it's for lack of better words, it's shit or get off the pot. Um, so I talked to my wife and talked to my mom and they, they'd been trying to get me to find another job or to, to quit and do something else for, for years. And I just, I didn't have, I didn't have the motivation. I didn't have the desire. I didn't have the energy to go find another job that I didn't like and pretend like I cared and, you know, go through the whole training process and all that kind of crap. I just didn't, if I was going to quit that job, I wanted to do my own thing. And I just stuck it out, you know, just suffered every day and used that as motivation to get my affairs in order and get, you know, get the kitchen up to code, get everything legal, get, get my ducks in a row, get, you know, do my packaging and my marketing, my licensing, my, get my website done, do everything I could possibly do to set myself up for success. And, uh, you know, basically run that day job for everything I could possibly ring it out for and decided that I was going to go. And, um, I decided that, uh, that this, this coming Friday was going to be my last day. It was like the last day of the pay period and blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't sleep the night before. Um, you know, I got like two hours of sleep and I woke up and I'm just staring at the ceiling fan and decided that I was, I was done. Like I just got up, got dressed, drove to the office at like five in the morning, packed up the stuff on my desk sent my boss and the HR manager an email, gave him an address to send me my last paycheck, left my company credit card and my key on my desk. And I walked out and, uh, dude, it's changed my life. Um, the, 
my my mood, my sleep, my attitude, my my outlook on life, everything, like my relationship with my wife, my friends, everything has has done a complete 100, 180 degrees. It's um you know, I obviously still have my struggles. I have my my nights laying awake at night wondering whether or not I'm going to be able to make enough money and you know, pay the mortgage and is this thing going to last and I'm going to be able to make this stick you know, is, is this just temporary? But at the end of the day, I get to get up in the morning with a smile on my face, excited about what I'm doing. Um, I got a badass hot rod. I get to jump in my 28 model a and drive 20 minutes to work instead of an hour and freaking stop and go morning traffic. I go to work whenever the hell I want to, you know, I, most of the time I'm going in at five or six o'clock in the morning. So it's not like it's working out in anybody's favor, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I get to go to work. I get to do what I want. I get to, you know, I get to create, I get to make stuff with my hands. I get to, to see people's, uh, excitement and, and the smile on their faces when they, when they get my products in the mail, if, if they order online or, or see them in the grocery store and, um, you know, get to, get to, if I want to take a day off and go to a car show or, or cut off early around lunchtime and go get a tattoo from one of my buddies, like it's, it sounds so cliche, but I'm fucking living the dream, dude. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm scrapping for pennies. I'm, I'm wondering whether or not I'm going to be able to make it work. You know what I mean? But the difference between that hate for that day job and working for somebody else and being able to cut out on your own and do something that makes you, it really makes you happy changes your fucking life. Yeah, it sounds like it. And that's, that's the whole point of the show. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. You know, it's, it's taking that, that big giant leap and making those changes you're talking about. And I mean, you've just described it perfectly. It's, that's awesome. Yeah. So, and I think, um, I think COVID did that for a lot of people. You know, whether it was uh, getting stuck at home, you know, working from home and realizing how much happy you are not being in the in the office with people or losing your job and realizing how frail, you know, that industry was that you were in or society as a whole or, you know, losing a loved one or whatever it was. I think COVID did that for a lot of people. And I had my I had this on my radar. I've had this on my radar for a few years now, but that was really the kick in my ass that made me realize that you need to get your shit together and make this happen because nobody else is going to do it for you. And, you know, the whole world could come crashing down at any moment. And what have you got to show for it? Yeah, I think I think that was the thing about COVID is regardless of, you know, they've politicized it now. Right. But at the beginning, none of us really knew what was going on. It was a little scary for everybody in the country across the world. And I think, you know, that that realization that something like this could cause our world to come to a screeching halt. I agree with you. I think it kind of made people go, well, wait a minute. Am I, am I really like getting up at, you know, nine to five and going to whatever job? Is that really where I, am I happy? Um, you know, another thing it did was made it a realization that the old traditional um, clock into the office at nine and clock out of the office at the physical location at five isn't quite necessary in today's world, too. We see a lot of 
of people that are able to work from home, work remotely, work, you know, we're doing a podcast through Zoom, right? Um, you know, I think that not that people weren't using technology, but I think it made it a lot more uh, prevalent in a lot of businesses that maybe didn't use it before. Right. Um, so I agree with right. you. So what did you start with? Did you, I mean, did you have, I, I want to know about your pickles. I mean, I know your, your biggest product's jerky, but did you start with jerky and, and pickles or was it jerky? Yeah. yeah, I started, I started with jerky. I started with uh, literally just one flavor, um, my original flavor. And then I, I started playing with some recipes and some ideas and, and got a handful more going. I did jerky um, exclusively for a couple of years. And then, uh, my mom and I were talking one day and we're talking about, you know, the garden that we had when I was growing up and, and pickling and canning and stuff. And we realized that we hadn't done that stuff since I was a kid. And so <clears throat> for Christmas one year, this, I think it was two years ago. Um, I went and found some, some pickling cucumbers. There's a difference between the, like the long, dark, green skinny cucumbers that you would usually chop up for salads and stuff like that and a pickling cucumber a lot of people don't know um but i found some pickling cucumbers and i bought a handful of them and uh i brought them over to my mom's we went to stay for like three or four days uh for christmas and kind of surprised her and was like hey i got these i got jars i got vinegar i got cucumbers I got some pickling spice you know what else do we need like we're gonna make we're gonna make pickles for christmas and Dude, my mom was like almost in tears. She was so freaking happy because she hadn't done that since I was a kid either. Right, right. Her and my dad had split up, so she didn't have that land and, you know, and stuff for the garden anymore. Um, So we made, I think we probably made like two or three dozen jars of pickles for that Christmas. And um, we we use um, the way she taught me and and I changed things up a little bit, but the, the base recipe that we're using is actually my great aunt's recipe that she taught my mom when she was young and that my mom taught me. And we were actually using the canning pot that my great aunt had given her. That's literally older than me. Um, cool. Yeah. We made these pickles for Christmas and got a bunch of pictures and everything. And my mom actually found my great aunt's recipe that she had scribbled down on this old piece of notebook paper and I found a frame and had it framed and gave it to her for Christmas and everything. And, um, she was like, dude, uh, why don't you put some labels on these and, and try selling them? And I was like, you know, I never really thought about that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's how pickles got started again a couple of years ago. And, um, I had always been interested in hot sauces, but I'd never really made any. So same kind of thing. I, you know, just started playing around with stuff. I, the way I generally do things, whether I'm cooking for dinner or, you know, trying to make a product is I'll look up, I'll Google, you know, half a dozen recipes and kind of read and get the gist of things and then just kind of wing it and play it out on my own. And so I started playing with a couple of different hot sauces and same thing, had a really good reaction from a handful of folks that I gave some to. So I started making, started making those and slapping labels on them. Um, Dude, I'm on your website right now and there's all kinds of stuff I need to try. But uh, like he has a beef jerky that's cheeseburger flavor. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's one of the ones. So I quit my day job um, the very end of May, 
And the, the reason I quit when I did is there's this big event here. Um, it's actually over in Irving, close to Dallas every year called Zest Fest. And it's this big convention center thing that they do. It's big, you know, everything spicy, everything from hot sauces. Obviously, everybody's got hot sauces and pickles and jerky and, and cookies and, you know, anything that you can make spicy. People, people um, sell and they have a couple hundred vendors and they do live cooking demos and the, you know, hot wing eating contest and, and celebrity chefs and all this stuff. And I'd done it last year. Um, and that was my first like really big event like that, you know, three day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday type of thing, like cost a freaking arm and a leg to get a booth there. So it was like a really big risk, you know, for me being so early in my company and, and everything. And I did, I did pretty well. Um, and that was coming up it was supposed to be in January, but they postponed it because of the COVID and they pushed it back to June. Um, so I quit my day job like two weeks before this. So I had a little bit more time to get some more products ready and everything. And, uh, one day my mom, my aunt, my uncle, and my cousin were all over at the kitchen, helping me make stuff for zest fest and try to get ready. And my phone dings, I get an email and I look at my phone and I start shaking and I start like my mom can tell like I'm, like I'm freaking out and she stops what she's doing and she's like, what's wrong? Like she's thinking somebody's, you know, somebody's dead, somebody's in a car accident or something. And I was like, I need you guys to stop what you're doing, put down whatever you're working on and listen. And I read her this email and it was from one of the guys at the corporate office of central market central markets, like kind of like whole foods or trader Joe's or something like that, like high end grocery store. Right. Right. But, but like bigger, like they're like, you're going there to buy, you know, caviar and champagne for dinner. You know, you're not running in to pick up a loaf of bread and some eggs. And, um, they were looking for some stuff for, um, what they call hatch fest. They do a big hatch green chili thing every August and they, everything in the store is hatch green chili. They roast fresh hatch green chilies out in front of the store that they truck in from New Mexico. And this guy was perusing around the internet, looking for hatch products and stumbled across my website, literally just stumbled across it on Google and saw that I had a hatch green chili beef jerky and a hatch chili pickle and shot me an email said he loved my packaging. He read my bio and they love to support veteran owned companies, small businesses, you know, blah, blah, blah. And asked me if I could mail them some samples and, uh, their headquarters is actually over here in Dallas. It's like 35, 40 minutes from my kitchen. Um, so I read this email to my mom, mom starts freaking bawling her eyes out. She's so freaking happy, you know, like dreams are coming true. And, um, awesome. so I take samples over there instead of mailing them and drop them off. And, um, I wait and I wait and I wait and I'm freaking out. It's been like a week and a half or so. And I'm literally at zest fest sitting at the booth. My brother-in-law had flown in town to help me because it was my wife's birthday weekend. And she's like, you're out of your mind. If you think I'm working on my birthday weekend. <laughs> um, and I shot him an email back and he's like, dude, uh, we love everything. Like we want it all. We want everything. And, um, see, so yeah, there was some, uh, there was some tears shed on that day. Um, so yeah, things have just, um, 
I don't want to say that I haven't busted my ass and, and put in the work and everything, but it's like the stars are aligning. Like, you know, if it's meant to be, it's, 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 it's going to happen. If you just put in that work, put in that elbow grease, don't right. give up, you know, stay till freaking two o'clock in the morning. If you have to catch a nap, go to the day job, you know, whatever it is you got to do. You just gotta, you just gotta bust your ass and make it happen. Nobody's gonna fucking do it for you, dude. If for our yeah. listeners, you gotta go check out Craig's, uh, Craig's, like uh, flavors, man. So high, it's www.highseasjerky.com. And for if if uh, if Mike Frazier is listening right now, a friend of the show, they have. They have a freaking crunchy taco flavor, sir. So if Mike, if you're listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna tag you actually on on Instagram, Mike, if you're listening. But uh, our friend of the show, Mike Frazier, uh, is an absolute taco nut job. So we're gonna get we're gonna get him some of that uh, crunchy taco flavor. But uh, yeah, so I, that's that's what I like doing, man. I like doing the weird stuff that you're not. I tell people I do the stuff you're not gonna find in the gas station. Like you can go. You know, I do the classics. I do the original style flavor. I do the black pepper or the teriyaki and stuff like that. But I want to do the weird stuff that people kind of like. They kind of back up and raise an eyebrow and they're like, crunchy what, taco jerky. What's your number one? What's your number one seller? Uh, man, that's a tough one. Um, I do a lot of I do a lot of weird stuff. I do a lot of one-off stuff. So, um, crunchy taco is a good one. I've kept that one around. Um, I did a dill pickle jerky recently that sold out pretty quick. Um, oh, that sounds good. I do, uh, I do a maple bourbon. I think uh, we had talked about that a, a week or so ago. Um, that yeah, was you're, so, you're sold out of that, right? Because I tried to order I, a bunch of that. I am. I was actually working on some of that today. Um, it's a really popular one. It sells pretty quick, but I freaking hate making it. Uh, because maple syrup <laughs> makes everything on the freaking planet sticky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, everything you own just, just gets, you know, like something that's a hundred feet away in the kitchen just magically winds up freaking sticky after I make that stuff. So it's a pain in the ass, but that one's a, that one's a really good one too. So did you, did you mm -hmm. make a batch of that? I did. I'm working. I was working on it today. I'll probably is it, have. Uh, is it sold? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Oh, I need 25 uh, bags like we talked about for Mongoose's yep. Christmas bags. Yep, yep. Um, I've got I've got the basic numbers in my head of what I think I'm going to come out of production with, and I've, I've already accounted for setting some of those aside for you. Oh, dude, just send me an invoice. Uh, yeah, let's, <laughs> as soon as we get done here, I, dude, I saw that one. I'm a, I am a huge, um, I'm not actually a huge maple guy. I like maple stuff, but like the whiskey maple, the whiskey um you, you know the whiskey vinaigrettes that kind of stuff i love that stuff so yeah well i have uh i have one for you i'll have to grab you a bottle and send it to you um because i don't think they're distributing outside of texas yet and this is a this is a completely unaffiliated plug i've i've, I've met met the guys a few times but i don't have any kind of business relations for them anything or anything so this is coming straight from the heart and from the gut but there is a distillery here in downtown Fort Worth called Blackland Distillery. And um, 
they've only been around for a couple of years, but I just discovered uh, probably about a year ago, I think they do a pecan and brown sugar bourbon. Oh, and it's the what? most delicious freaking whiskey I've ever tasted ever. That sounds like What's that just sounds like candy. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's it's like I don't like the really sweet stuff. Um, yeah. and I I don't drink a whole. I, I'll be honest with you, I don't drink a whole lot of bourbon or whiskey straight. Um, I tend to be more of a mixer, an old fashioned type of guy, or maybe a Manhattan once in a while. But this, oh, stuff, me too, dude. Me too. This stuff, dude, you can drink it room temperature straight out of the bottle or over some rocks or with this little splat. They do. So when you go in the distillery, they got a little tasting room and they'll do an old fashioned with uh, a little bit of saline water. And, oh, yeah. uh, dude, it's unfreaking believable. Oh, I got to get some of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's real nice. Mm. Well, tell sounds, us. That all sounds really good. You've kind of already hit the spot, but. Um, we always ask every guest, uh, if you could give one piece of an advice to, to an entrepreneur or somebody trying to make a change in their life for whatever reason, um, what would that one piece of advice be for somebody trying to start a business or whatever? You kind of already hit it, but yeah, your, um, you know, find something that you're passionate about and don't give up, but, but right. give us one yeah. piece of advice. Man, I, it's hard to narrow down to one. Um, I'd say the the most important thing is find something that you're passionate about and don't give up on it. Um, I've always tried to live by the mantra that that uh, find something you love and let it kill you. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the most important thing for me, other than finding my passion and not giving up on it, has been uh, friends, friends and family. Like I. I would not be able to do any of this stuff by myself. Like um, the amount of, of support and help and advice, like don't be afraid to ask questions, ask favors, reach out to strangers, you know, reach out to people in whatever industry it is that you're trying to get into. Um, just don't try to do it by yourself. Um, not saying that you can't, but it's a hell of a lot easier. And I've got, um, uh, I've got an incredible, amazing group of friends, most of them being veterans, but even the ones that aren't, man, if they're, uh, if they're real homies, they're going to be right there by your side. And I, I could not have done anything that I've culminated to at this point in my life without, um, you know, most of all my wife and my mom and, and a couple of family that's still around, but, uh, my, my, my group of homies, man, I, there's no way, no way you can do this stuff by yourself. Heard that. That's very cool. Tell well, us, uh, tell the, oh, sorry, Brian. I was just no, saying, tell the, tell the listeners where we, where they can find you. Uh, man, we've got the website. You hit on that well ago. Um, high seas jerky.com. Um, that's, that's got a listing of all the products that I've got in stock currently. Um, I, I'm not great at social media. I've been trying to step up my game a little bit on it, but, uh, you know, between being busy and, and kind of being a little shy of, uh, of the spotlight and stuff like that, I, I'm not the greatest, but I try to do my best to post regularly on, on uh, Instagram and Facebook and keep up with, uh, you know, whatever events I've got coming up or new flavors or um, I run some, some promo codes from time to time for the website to get stuff a little bit cheaper, you know, knock a little bit off of shipping and stuff like that. So, so yeah, keep up with, uh, 
Pisces Jerky on Instagram and Facebook if you're a social media person. Um, like I said, we don't have a retail store front of my own yet. Um, just honestly too busy to, uh, to keep up with it. Um, and getting another space and going through all that red tape rigmarole, but we, we do have, uh, five flavors of jerky and five flavors of pickles picked up in all 10 central market stores. There's, uh, six here in the DFW area, one in Houston, uh, one in San Antonio and two in Austin. So you can find a, find a handful of stuff in those that's stores. Awesome, bro. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. That's and of awesome. course, we'll, uh, we'll link all that in our website and social media too. So if anybody's out there and you missed it. You can uh, check it out on our website too, nothingo.com. So it'll be, it'll be there for you guys. Awesome. Well, cool, man. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I know we've kept you probably over our, our time, we promise, but uh, you had an awesome story. We really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I know I'm definitely hungry. I actually got my order going <laughs> as we're talking here. So I got a couple bags in the shopping cart. I'm going right. to finish that up as soon as we're done here. So. Awesome. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me, man. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. We course, appreciate man. you coming on. Yeah. Welcome back yeah, anytime. You know, anytime, anytime anything changes, we're always here for you. So uh, it's, we wish you the best of luck and doors open for you. So if you need anything yeah. from us, we're here for you. Yeah. Thank you guys. And the same, same to you guys and same to all your, your uh, listeners and followers and everything. I'm by no means any kind of expert in any of this stuff. I'm just kind of winging it. And, you know, they always say it's uh, easier to ask forgiveness than permission. And I definitely do that more often than not, but uh if anybody's out there on the fence about trying to start your own thing or get into another industry or, you know, just completely get out of what you're doing and, and follow your dreams, your passion, or, you know, just find another job that you don't hate or whatever it may be. I'm, I don't know how much I'll have to give you, but I'm, I'm happy to help any way I can answer questions or give advice or, you know, just listen while you tell me your sob story, man. It's, uh, it's what we're here for. Yeah, cool. very, very generous. Well, cool. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you again for your time and all your generosity with those, those offers there. That's awesome. Um, can't really say anything else. It was a real pleasure. So I will sign off for the night. So for Ben, for Craig, this is Brian signing off for the uh, Nothing Old podcast. Thank you guys. And we will uh, talk to you soon. Bye, everybody.